Please take your Bible and turn with me to the book of John, the seventh chapter. We're resuming where we left off last week, John 7, 25, and we will look through verse 39 today, God willing. But before that, I'd like to make some preliminary remarks. I'd like to talk to you for a few moments about the importance of water to our health. Would anyone argue that good, clean water is something that's incidental to our lives or ultimately important to our lives? Certainly it is. Water comprises 60% of my body weight. It comprises 90% of the blood which courses through my veins. It is necessary for the health of my kidneys and my colon in order for the emission of those toxic wastes in our bodies which would kill us if it were not for the functioning properly of these organs and they depend upon water for that purpose. It's also important for good health in our skin, in our brains. You name it, water is critically important. It's more important than food. Why do I say that? A person of average ability or health can live anywhere from 30 to 50 days without food. But, so I'm told, only 7 to 10 days without water. The drive for water is stronger on the physical level than any other drive that you have. For good reason. We can't live without it. The strongest drive in us for that which is not physical, that which will outlast these old physical bodies, is the drive for living water. This explains why we as people have a hunger for something more than just the physical. We know that there's something more that we need in this life. I'll never forget reading the autobiography of Helen Keller. You may remember this child who was not born blind and deaf, but became blind and deaf due to some medicine that was administered to her ill-advisedly. And for all of her remembered life, she could not experience or express what she was feeling until a wonderful person came into her life, Ann Sullivan, and became her teacher. And then in the process, she was taught about Jesus and about God. Do you remember the story? She said when she heard about God, she said, in my entombment of blindness and deafness, I knew there was a God. I just did not know his name. Do you know why that was true of her? For the same reason it's true of you and me. Because in the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 11, the scripture says that God has set eternity in the hearts of every human being. Yes, we are fallen human beings. The image of God has been marred in our lives because of our sin. But even people who've never heard the name of God have that sense that they need something more to bring satisfaction to their lives. This passage of Scripture is set against the backdrop of one of the great festivals of Israel, the festival known as the festival or the time of the remembering of living in booths, the Feast of Tabernacles. And you know about that as being a time when Jesus, in this chapter, was encouraged by his physical brothers 
to go public at that particular feast. Here's the reason why, if you recall. The reason is, of all the three mandatory festivals that every male Jew was required to attend annually, was the Feast of Tabernacles and of the Feast of Ingathering and also the Feast of Weeks and the Feast of Passover. Well, this was the most favorite of all. It was the end of the harvest season. There was a high sense of festivity. Think about it for a moment. When you have completed a great task and you have seen the hand of God in blessing you, that's an occasion for rejoicing, isn't it? And there would be more than the normal people who would come to the other two mandatory feasts. Well, the brothers of Jesus said, we think you're telling us that you're the Messiah. And if you are the Messiah, this is the time to go public because there'll be so many people there. You're going to have a huge audience. It's showtime, Jesus, is what they really were saying. Jesus would have nothing of it. He knew that they equated popularity with power. He understood that they believed that the way you find fulfillment in life is to get a big following of people. That is not Jesus' perspective. Jesus did not want popularity. In fact, in doing the will of the Father, he opted for obscurity. He said, no, brothers, you go ahead, I'm not going. We know that later he did go, but he went secretly. He did not go publicly. He went secretly, and he showed up there. People also, in this world in which we live, some of you have traveled this road. Some of you are on that road today. People have sought their fulfillment, their significance, their purpose for life in being popular, only to discover it's fallen flat. And it does not bring that which you think you're looking for. We've also seen Jesus confronted in chapter 7 in verses 15 and 16 by those who believed institutional knowledge was the way to power. And in this world, it is true, isn't it? People who are institutionally knowledgeable, those people are the people who in many cases control things. Look at chapter 7, verses 15 and 16. We looked at these in more detail last week, but I'd like to jog your memory a bit. Chapter 7, 15 and 16, the Jews, and remember the Jews is not a reference to all the descendants in Israel at this time, but only a select few. They were the rulers, the chief priests, and the scribes. They made up what is known as the Sanhedrin, which was the governing body of 70 men who ruled the internal affairs of all the Jewish people. Verse 15 says, But when it was now the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. The Jews, therefore, were marveling, saying, How has this man become learned, having never been educated? You see, these people were big on institutional credentials. And they knew that Jesus was a learned man. In fact, truth be told, they believed deep down in their hearts that he was the most learned man they'd ever heard, because indeed, he was the most learned man. But he had not sat at the feet of any of their great rabbis. But look what Jesus says in verse 16. Jesus therefore answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. At whose feet had Jesus sat to be taught? At the feet of the one who sent him. Perhaps a better way of saying that is said in the prologue to the Gospel of John. 
For the Bible says, no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. That is, explained God. Jesus was before time in the bosom of the Father. What that is saying figuratively, He was intimate with the Father. He knew everything the Father said. He knew everything the Father thought. And consequently, when He became a man in history, He carried that information with Him and He continued to live in that sort of relationship with God the Father. We have seen it in chapter 5. We saw it last week in chapter 8, verse 28, where Jesus says, I say nothing except what the Father says to me. That's why Jesus... Teaching was so impactful. Jesus did not have to go to some institution of higher learning within Judaism to learn what he learned, to teach what he taught. He received it before the creation of the world. He continued to receive it during his 33 years on earth. He still retains it today, seated at the right hand of God the Father. So the world is big on institutional knowledge. I have some degrees myself. I'm glad I got them. I'm blessed to have had the opportunity to get what is normally called a higher education. I'm not knocking that. But if you or I or anyone else thinks that the key to power, ultimately, the key to your meaning and significance is to be found in the acquisition of some sort of educational credentialing, you're wrong. Institutional credentialing of any kind, whether it's educational or any kind, does not confer that which we need to bring fulfillment in our lives. I know you're familiar with the statement, knowledge is power. Perhaps you do not know the one who is credited with that. His name was Francis Bacon. Mr. Bacon was an essayist a couple of hundred years ago who wrote prolifically and wrote influentially. And he said that, knowledge is power. Mary J. Blige, some of you know that name, many of you don't. If you're younger, you know the name probably. Mary J. Blige is a woman who has won nine Grammys for either singing or songwriting. She's been nominated three times in recent years for Golden Globe as, in each case, Best Supporting Actress. Most recently, in a movie released last year called Mudbound, she gave her spectacular performance. And this is what she said about knowledge. I wish I had known all along that knowledge is power. And then Tom Clancy, some of you know that name, the prolific spy thriller artist, upon his death just this decade, he left 100 million copies of his books which had been bought and probably mostly read. Once you pick one of them up, it's virtually impossible to put it down. The screenplays which were derived from some of those books when he died had grossed almost $800 million. This man was an influential man. This is what he says about knowledge is power. The control of information is something the elite always does particularly in a despotic form of government. That means a tyrannical government, a dictatorship. Knowledge is power. 
If you can control information, you can control people. That's what these institutional people, the Sanhedrin, were loving because they had the power. You see, they had the knowledge. They were the only ones who could properly interpret the Torah, the Old Testament prophets and the Psalms. They had a handle on that and they really sat in a position of power over so many less literate people who were descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. As an aside, our last five presidents, including President Trump, believe it or not, earned degrees from Ivy League schools. They joined ten others who did. You know, it's almost necessary these days to get an Ivy League degree in order to even be considered for president. That's the center of power, isn't it? In the United States and in the world, in many cases. Well, the good news is that you don't have to have that kind of institutional knowledge to credential you to find fulfillment. In fact, you may have a higher degree than high school, and you may be a person who's empty today. You've tried and you've tried to find that which will fulfill you, only to discover that it's something that has eluded you. Just as you're growing closer to achieving whatever that goal is, then it quickly slips out of your hands. Well, Jesus offers us living water. That's the thing we really need. It's great to be a person who has a certain degree of popularity with people as long as we don't compromise ourselves in gaining that popularity. It's good to have friends. We're built for relationships. It's good to have some education so that we can read and we can communicate and we can love the Lord our God with all our minds. Those things are fine. But Jesus gives us this living water. And he speaks about his own origin to begin with. So we're going to work our way through the passage rather than I read the entire passage. We're just going to work our way through it. And we're going to look, first of all, at the section 25 through 30 of John 7. So read silently as I read this text. Therefore, some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, Is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? And look, he is speaking publicly. And they are saying nothing to him. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? Do they? However, we know where this man is from, but whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he is from. The fact that it was common knowledge that there was an attempt, a plot to kill Jesus had reached the ears of the common people. And as they witnessed what Jesus was saying that day in the temple during the week of the celebration of tabernacles. They knew this was some extraordinary man. They had heard of the signs. Some of them had even seen the great miracles of Jesus. So they knew this man probably was the Messiah. But they had the common conception of the day, and it's an unbiblical conception, by the way, perception, that the Messiah would come mysteriously and no one would know where he came from. Well, there is a sense in which the Messiah is predicted 
to come mysteriously. If they had only been taught the word of God rather than the traditions of men, they would have known it. It was the fault of these scribes and teachers. If you have your Bible and would like to look at Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, we read this in chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. Behold, I'm going to send my messenger. This is God speaking, the Father. And, he, and he's talking about John the Baptist here, I'm sure. The forerunner of the Messiah. And he will clear the way before me. And the Lord, now he's speaking about Jesus, whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. That's in the Bible. They should have known that the Lord would come from the Father. That's his origin. And he would suddenly appear in the temple. Isn't that exactly what had happened this Feast of Tabernacle week? That's exactly what had happened. Jesus did not come with a throng of people. He secretively came in and he shows up at the temple and begins to declare these great truths that are contained in the seventh chapter of the book of John. But they said, these rulers, they're not attempting to do anything about him. I thought they were Trying to kill him. That's the rumor. That's the word on the street. Well, they concluded then, maybe they have trusted him as Messiah. And they've given up their attempt to take his life. And then they said, well, in a way, we know where he's from. He's not from anywhere other than Nazareth. That's the way he is described. He's Jesus of Nazareth. And can any good thing come out of Nazareth? They were confused. They were having distorted thinking about him. But Jesus sets the record straight, beginning in verse 28. Let's see what he says. Jesus therefore cried out in the temple. And I want to stop here just a moment. Here's Jesus, who's being sought after by people who want to kill him. And those very people, many of them, were there in the temple that day. The chief priest was one of the leaders in this whole plot to take Jesus' life. And he was there. And many others who made up the Sanhedrin were there. And Jesus doesn't whisper to a little crowd over here just to kind of fulfill his mission. He didn't just whisper this to them. He cries out. I mean, this is something unusual for Jesus. Usually when Jesus is... Teaching, he sits down. That was the normal position that a rabbi would take when teaching. But this time, we see him in this text standing up and he's crying out. What does that tell you about the courage of Jesus? He was no coward, hardly at all. He didn't whisper. He wants everybody to hear what he's going to say. <clears throat> he says, as we read further here, verse 28. You both know me and know where I'm from. He's being sarcastic here probably. And I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. What's he saying? They knew full well what he was saying. God had sent him. But he makes this dramatic statement. We don't know the full impact it would have when he said, whom you do not know. He's talking to these leaders. It was like dropping an atomic bomb in the temple. Because these were the men, remember, who were the keepers of the institutional knowledge. They are the ones who are the religious know-it-alls. 
And for him to say that, wow. In verse 29, I know him because I am from him and he sent me. And look what the text says in verse 30. They were seeking therefore to seize him. And no man laid his hand on him because his hour had yet not come. Now let's pause and make some application to our lives. This is very important for us to understand. The application is this. As the level of danger rose higher for Jesus, his courage kept rising above the level of danger. Why? Because he knew his hour had not come. He realized that God, his Father, was sovereign over his life. He knew that until God was through with him in his humanity, in this life, no one can touch him. And it was only when the Father would take his hand off of him in order to make it the right time, when he would go and die on an old rugged cross for your sin and mine, that this attempt at seizing him and arresting him would take place. This is six months before the Passover for Christ was eventually arrested and crucified on a tree. So we see Jesus is encouraged by the fact that God the Father is in control. May I stop here just a moment? If I were to choose one doctrine of God, if I could only have one doctrine of God, it would be the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. That God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords as Moses spoke in the 10th chapter of Deuteronomy. There is no other God but God. And He rules all the events of human history and galactic history and universal history. That is our God. And He is intimately interested in Jesus. He's intimately interested in you if you are His son or His daughter. And He is caring for you just as surely and carefully today as He cared for Jesus when He walked on the face of the earth. And that gives us a sense of security that is incomprehensible. It's something that blows the mind, but it is indeed the truth. Jesus walked in dependence on the strength of His Father and the protection of His Father. 2 Thessalonians 3.3 tells us this, that the Lord will strengthen you and protect you against the evil one. Bank on it. Believe it. It will change our lives if we do that. We can be just like Jesus, knowing nothing can harm us unless God allows it. Stonewall Jackson, the military genius of the South in the Civil War, listen to what he wrote in this regard. My religious beliefs teach me that I'm just as safe on the battlefield as in my bed. God's fixed the time of my death. I don't concern myself with that. But to be always ready whenever it may overtake me. He's talking about death. Now listen to this last line. That's the way all men should live. And all men would be equally brave. Jesus' courage came from knowing that there was a time appointed for His death. No one could touch Him until then. We too, who know Christ, 
We know that there is a moment appointed for our death. And even if you don't know Jesus, come to grips with it. There's coming a day of reckoning in your life. You, just like everyone else, will stand before a holy God and will give an answer for what you did with the life which God has made available to you. Let's move on now and look at the reactions. There are two reactions always to the preaching of the gospel. One negative and one positive. We'll begin with a negative reaction as we look at verse 28 again. We want to note what Jesus said. He said, you don't know. He's talking to the religious leaders. You don't know about God. You don't know Him. You think you do. You say you do, but you really don't know Him. Verse 31 says, But many of the multitude believed in Him. And they were saying, When the Christ shall come, He will not perform more signs than those which this man has, will He? The Pharisees heard the multitude muttering these things about Him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize Him. Man, these people were angry. And you can understand why. Jesus has given His best shot at their power of institutional knowledge, hadn't he? He had said, you don't know God. You've got a lot of learning at the feet of great teachers, great rabbis, but you don't know God. There's an application here for us. The question we need to ask, do we know God? And if we don't, how will we know God? Well, Jesus is very clear. This is eternal life that you may know God and Jesus Christ, whom He has sent. We know God through Jesus. I'll talk more about that a little later. When Jesus threw this punch, it was not a sucker punch. They of all people should have known. They had the Torah at their hands. They had the prophets. They had the Psalms. They had the Word of God. But they preferred the institutional knowledge of generation after generation of rabbis whom they looked to before they looked to Scripture. The Scripture, in a sense, had been lost to them because of their love for the power that comes from holding the information that's not privy to all those who call themselves God followers. Was Jesus pushing their buttons when He said this? Well, yes and no. It did push their buttons. It made them furious. But he didn't really set out to push their buttons. He never sets out to push anybody's buttons. Jesus sets out to tell the truth because, you know, the truth sets you free. That's what gives you significance, is knowing the truth. Jesus is the truth, and he sets you free. Remember when he stands before Pilate, and Pilate is musing about the meaning of truth, and there was truth personified right there in front of him. The Word of God is truth. It speaks of Jesus Jesus is the subject of all of Scripture. Jesus speaks of this in John chapter 5, verses 39 and 40. And there are other places in the Bible where this is signified too. No, Jesus was not trying to push the buttons of this cast of characters. He was just telling the truth. But many believed. There are always going to be people who believe. So why don't all of us believe? Well, we don't all believe because the God of this age has blinded the eyes of unbelievers. And it's moments like this where people like you who come to a place like this, you come in hopes 
of receiving something that will help you in your life. Well, this is more than a self-help exercise that we have here on Sunday morning. This is an exercise to exalt God, to teach Christ, to hopefully be a tool in the hands of the Holy Spirit to show you who Jesus is. And so you can discover that He is the living water. He's the only one who can satisfy you. If you go to the end of your life never having known Him, it's because you have not heard the truth or having heard the truth, you have not responded in faith to the truth. Let's look at some further comments by Jesus and the reaction of the leadership core in Israel. Let's look at verse 32. We've already looked at it, so we don't need to reread that. What the Pharisees did, they sent officers to seize him. These were temple guards. They were of the tribe of Levi, assigned to the chief priests. It was their job to maintain order in the temple. And so that's what they were doing. At the command of the chief priest, they went to try to settle this problem. Therefore, Jesus says in verse 33, For a little while longer I am with you, then I go to him who sent me. You shall seek me and shall not find me, and where I am you cannot come. This is just like adding fuel to the fire. First of all, you don't know him, name God, namely God, and you can't come where I'm coming. Who do you think you are, Jesus? They were thinking and saying. I mean, they were tearing their hair out. Probably. Verse 35, the Jews therefore said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we shall not find him? In other words, we could go wherever we want to go. He's not intending to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, is he? He's probably talking about the Jews had been dispersed by their own choice and sometimes under persecution to other places in the Mediterranean world, the Roman Empire, and they had become Hellenistic. That is, they had become Greek-speaking Jews. They're saying, he's not going there, is he? Verse 36, what is the statement that he said? You will seek me and will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. Wow. We're coming to the real beautiful point in the scripture. It's all beautiful, but this is even more so. This is what we are going to hear Jesus say. So just follow me for a moment, please. I'm going to put my interpretation here. In these next three verses... Jesus is saying, living water, he's saying it to us today. Living water is what people who are seeking popularity and control through religion are really looking for and don't know it. Jesus is saying, in effect, they're looking for me. Remember what we read in 1 Corinthians 10.4? Do you remember that? How Jesus is the spiritual rock in the 40 years of wilderness wanderings when the people were... Thirsty, 16.7 of Exodus talks about how Moses was told by God to strike the rock at Mount Horeb and water flowed and they were with, not without water for the entire 40 years. Jesus was that rock. And Jesus is the rock today for us. Jesus is the one from whom the living water pours. That's what he's saying. Now let's look at the condition for receiving living water. It's simple. Jesus says in verse 37, If any man is thirsty, there's the simplicity of it. Are you thirsty? Have any of you been thirsty? I'm thirsty right now, actually. I can't wait to finish, and I'm sure you can't either. But I'm thirsty. I want a drink of water, and I'm first thing I'm going to do, I'm going to go down there in the front row, have some water. 
awesome. I'm thirsty. Do you have that kind of thirst for Jesus? Have you ever had that kind of thirst? You may have had thirst and not known for whom you were thirsting or for what you were thirsting. It's Jesus. It's His living water. No one is called to be a follower of Jesus except he or she burns with desire for this living water. So many conversions, so-called, are of no effect. Why? Because people have been sort of pushed or hoodwinked into an impartial commitment to Christ. They have not really been told about the gospel and they have not had this strong desire. I remember when I came to Christ as a boy, as plainly as if it were last January instead of 60 Januaries ago. I remember when I heard the call to receive Jesus Christ given by the evangelist, Angel Martinez, in my home church in Memphis, Tennessee. I knew Christ was calling me and I wanted Him. Nothing was going to keep me that day from giving my life to Jesus. I was thirsty. This is the single condition. You admit your need. Do you know that you need Jesus Christ more than any other person or any other thing in life? He is the life. He is the resurrection and the life. There is no real life that will be sustained throughout this life nor the life to come that makes a difference apart from a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only is the condition simple, but the invitation is simple. Let's look at it. If any man is thirsty, verse 37, let him come, and let me interpret a moment, let him keep on coming to me and keep on drinking. We are to be people who are coming and thirsting and coming and thirsting and drinking of Jesus. He's available to us regularly. And once you taste of Him, you will not be satisfied with any other thing that you are pursuing for genuine fulfillment in your life. I heard an interview given on ESPN. I'm not sure which host was hosting, but it was with John Goldsmith. You know him as the world's most interesting man, perhaps. I remember this man who held that role for 10 years and was dismissed by his employer, Dos Equis, for another guy, and that guy's bombed, so they're calling Goldsmith back. And I remember how he would finish his commercials. Stay thirsty, my friend. Remember that? Well, that's what the Lord's saying here to us. If any man is thirsty, let him keep on coming. And keep on drinking. I'm not talking about liquor here. I'm talking about the living water. And out of his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. What does that mean? Well, the act of drinking is simple too. Verse 38. He who believes in me. Have you really trusted Christ? I like what John Calvin says about this. This is not footwork. This is faith work. You don't do anything to receive Christ. You exercise the faith that God gives you by the Holy Spirit to believe in Jesus. 
And he puts, I'm talking about the Holy Spirit now, that heart desire that you can't suppress. You, some of you here today have tried. You've tried to squash it down and squash it down, marginalize it, the voice of the Spirit of God. But it's coming. If he's begun to speak to you, it's coming. It's a good voice, but it feels awful negative to you right now. But it's coming. Why don't you trust Christ today? He's the living water. He's the one who can give you this living water so that from your innermost being, that literally translates the word for belly, from your belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not glorified. Now, was the Spirit created when Christ was glorified? No, a thousand times no. The Spirit is eternal, just like God the Father and God the Son. Eternal. But the Spirit did not indwell people until after Jesus was glorified, which raises a very important question. What does it mean when Jesus talks about being glorified? Here's what it means. It means He was raised up so that He could draw all people to Himself. And He was not raised up to a throne like we would suppose the Messiah would occupy on earth. He was raised up on a throne of a cross and suffered all the accusing that was false, all the abuse to pay for your sin and my sin, which had to be paid to appease a holy God. God the Father and God the Son, God the Spirit collaborated to come up with this great gospel that climaxed in Christ's death on the cross and His resurrection from the dead. And now He's ascended into heaven. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Jesus was glorified. And then the Spirit came at Pentecost and He indwelled. Actually, there was a pre-Pentecostal experience that's recorded later in the book of John where Jesus met with the apostles and He breathed on them. And by His breathing on them, they were filled with the Spirit, just like that. They were indwelled by the Spirit. So, out of our innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. I want to quote William Temple and then finish with a couple final comments. He who trusts in Jesus not only receives the water of life that springs up to eternal life, that's sort of a selfish motive in a way. Who wouldn't want eternal life? Who would not want living water? Who would not want a life in this life that matters and is full of joy and peace? Who wouldn't want that? But he goes on to say, but that person who receives the water of life becomes the source of that gift to others. Now listen carefully. This is the answer to your frustration in life. This is the answer, the true answer, that every man and woman seeks for because God has set eternity in his or her heart. The answer for why you're here and the reason for your creation. You were created to know God so that you could glorify God by doing the will of God. But you have to know Him. And His will is about other people. It's not about you. It's not about me. The Christian life is not about selfishness. It's not what can I get out of God. It's about what God can get using me in whom He dwells. This is the Christian life. There's nothing like it. You say, well, that's good for you, Mike. You make your living doing this. Hey, it's good for everybody. It doesn't matter who you are. Jesus, when we come to Him and we believe Him, 
We simply say, Lord, I need you. I can't do this. I'm not good enough. I don't deserve it. Lord, I don't deserve it. Lord, would you please give me living water? Jesus said, I wondered why it took you so long. I've been here for you. And you give Jesus your life and he changes it. And the big change is in the attitude we have toward him, of course, but toward other people. And we have this compulsion to want to help people. Why? Because he's come to live in us. And what did he do on earth? According to the book of Acts, he went about doing good. So what will happen when we come to know it? We're going to go about doing good in the name of Jesus, not for our own glory, but for the glory of God. So the invitation is clear, I hope, to you today. If you're thirsty, come to Jesus and drink. And your life is going to be transformed. You're going to be a man or a woman whose life is not about you anymore, but it's about Jesus and therefore, it's about other people. Now, we've talked about these people. Uh, they were religious people. The boys who were the brothers of Jesus, they were men by this time. They, they were religious people. They were pretty upstanding citizens. And, of course, on the surface, the rulers were upstanding also. But Jesus says, if anyone comes to me, that would include people who are upper crust and the people who are at the bottom of the barrel. And the Lord makes no distinction. He is no respecter of persons. He shows no partiality. Everybody created the image of God. He came, Jesus did, to die for us. Probably not too many people know the name Kendrick Lamar in this room. He, like Mary J. Blige, is an award-winning recording artist. But he does hip-hop. His Lyrics are rather blue when you look at them. It couldn't be mentioned, some of the words. He has one entitled, Dying of Thirst. It tells the story of one of his good friends who was shot in an act of violence in their hometown of Compton, California. And this young man died in his arms. He tells about his sister who resorted to prostitution because of her addiction to drugs. It's a sad story. And he laments it. And he talks about how difficult it is to be a child of the ghetto. And then, at the end, he makes a remarkable statement. And I'm interpreting here. Look it up if you want to. It's online. But this is what he says, in effect, at the end. The only hope for people who are thirsty is the living water, Jesus Christ. So it doesn't matter whether you're in Compton or you're in the penthouse in New York City. Christ is the only one who can give you what you want right now if you have a desire for Him. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Have you ever received Jesus as your Lord and Savior? What is keeping you from that? Would you just say to Jesus right now if you've never received Him or unsure whether you have, Lord Jesus... I need you. I don't think I can go another day without you. Lord Jesus, please come into my life. I don't know everything there is to know about you, but I want to know you. Please, Lord.
thank you. If you prayed that prayer, what you can be sure of is that Jesus heard that prayer. And He is going to give you the grace you need to follow Him. Amen.